It's amazing the way God works in our lives. You know, sometimes uh, we see him very clearly. Other times we wonder where he went. But uh, he's always there. And at times he makes himself a lot more obvious than at other times. And I love those times when I walk away and say, that's a God thing. God did that, clearly. A few weeks ago, I asked to speak in the East Region, the early service they have in Plano that has most of the young guys in it, the campus ministry that our grandson is in. And I had a lesson from Ecclesiastes that I wanted to share that I I felt like they needed uh, emotionally, and I think moved everyone else as well. In fact, it moved me so much that when I got home, I dropped Teresa off, and I went for a drive in the countryside for about an hour and just talked with God. And I went all the way back in my life, and I came away with some things that said, you know, I'm losing all confidence in the concept of coincidence. And I came back and started writing and wrote much of the rest of the day, actually, typing it out on the computer. And uh, I went back in my life. I wrote 14 pages. I might post it on my website. I've gotten a couple of pieces of advice. The guy said, do it. It's a lot of personal stuff, but it goes back to my childhood. And things that happen, and I go back and look at it and say, God was doing that, although I did not at the time realize it at all. And so that was a very moving time. But God's kept up at this God thing. Uh, and uh, they asked, where do you want to go? And I know my wife's favorite place is Cheesecake Factory, so we ended up at Cheesecake Factory. Well, we had this really sharp young man as a waiter, And he came over, and he was really quick and really on top of it, obviously a a sharp young man. As we started talking, it turns out that his uh, career path that he's getting on is one that Mark had been in. And so they connected really quickly. So this kid named Bryson is back and forth and back and forth talking with us. And the way it all worked out, basically, there's someone in the East that's the ideal person to get in touch with him and to mentor him and all of that, someone that's very, very good in their field. And uh, so we started talking about that one and have gotten them hooked up since then But and said, would you guys pray for me? And I thought, well, praise God for Texas, but it's more than that. That would never happen in Boston and Toronto and places, you know. But anyway, we we did that, and uh, so... Texted Bryson, talked to him about coming today, even though he normally works Sundays. I don't know how he got off today. I hadn't heard that yet. But anyway, Bryson's back there with Mark. And uh, so just something clicked that day. I knew it was a God thing. Yesterday, I was out on my prayer walk. I'm coming back in my neighborhood, and I saw this guy out. Uh, He's got this old 57 uh, Chevrolet station wagon. And so he comes out, he's got a couple of little kids running around, and I hadn't met him, so I went over and met him, and we talked for a little bit, and he told me he went through a really stressful time when his newborn baby was uh, born recently, and I said, well, you know, I've got just the book for that, Victory of Surrender, and he said, wow, that is what I need, and I said, I'll bring it back over to you later. Well, after a while, his wife came out, met her, and uh, at any rate, I went home and Pulled out Victory of Surrender and then also the book uh, Fairy Tales Can Come True about our marriage, a book I wrote a couple of years back. 
And so I remembered his name. I, I wrote, Dear So-and-So, and I forgot his wife's temporarily, but I decided to go back that afternoon. Well, I went back, and they're not at home. So I went back to my house, and about 7 o'clock, I knew that uh, Chris Carter was coming over. I think Chris taught here once with me right on a Wednesday night. Anyways, he works for Toyota, and he's uh, uh, actually in the Lexus division, program director, quite a young man, but I'm mentoring him in his teaching. At any rate, I knew he was coming over about 7, and he, he has two Lexuses already, and now, because he got this big promotion recently, they gave him some kind of little Lexus sports car, so he's got three cars and two people driving, but at any rate... Uh, he came over. I said, well, let, let's get in the car and run over to this guy's house. I want to give him these books. So we go over to his house, and all of a sudden, Chris starts talking to him about his car and getting into all kinds of details. I did not know what they were talking about. It was Greek to me. And then the guy opens up his garage. He's got this old truck that he's restored that's phenomenal, and they start, he opens up the hood, and Chris starts talking about every little thing. Turns out Chris has a background in restoration of cars, racing cars, all kinds of stuff. I had no idea, and I know Chris well. <laughs> had no idea, so here I am, just listening to them talk, and what a connection that was. So glad he wasn't home earlier in the day when I went, because I don't know how to talk all that stuff, I can tell you. Uh, not that I'm uninterested in it, I'm just ignorant of the whole subject. But at any rate, they had quite a conversation. The wife came out with a new little baby. We talked. I, I said, I'll give you the marriage book here. I'll give him the other book. And so uh, we made quite a connection there. But clearly, I mean, all those details, I only know one guy that knows that much about cars and restorations. And I didn't know that I knew him until <laughs> yesterday. So at any rate... I'm just excited to see the hand of God move, and I've about lost any concept of coincidence. I just don't believe in it. I believe God is behind every little detail in every way, small, big, and the subject for today, huge, about the only solution to sin. Now, I know that you know the answer to that. If I just said, what's the only solution to sin? Jesus died for our sins, right? I mean, everyone knows that, at least in Texas. And uh, so you'd know that immediately. But what I love to do is take a deeper look. Go in a deeper way. Go into some things maybe you haven't heard a lot. And it might help clear up some things. And more importantly, it might build your faith in a deeper way that changes your life more. And that, of course, is what I'm interested in doing. In our last lesson two weeks ago, this is kind of part two, in our last lesson, we studied what it meant to walk in the steps of Jesus, doing what he would do if he were among us today in the flesh. Then we discussed the concept of fullness in that connection. And we looked at passages that said Jesus was the fullness of God. And we explained being the fullness means that he demonstrated in his flesh God. That in the Old Testament, it would be hard to really understand God but if he became flesh and you could see him, you could really grasp him. And that's what Jesus said he came to do, to reveal God to us. That was one of his purposes. And then uh, we looked at what the Bible says about the church. 
And it says the church is the fullness of Jesus. And so the point is, if we couldn't really totally understand God, not that we'll ever totally understand God, but if we couldn't understand God as fully as humans are capable of without seeing Him in the flesh, then the world is not going to understand Jesus until the world sees Jesus in our flesh as his disciples. That's a very profound thing, don't you think? So we covered the idea in the last lesson about Jesus being interested in the whole person, uh, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. He met all the needs in those areas. But we also said he's got a priority, and the priority is the area that lasts past this brief life. Physically, he didn't give us all the clues about how to eat right and whatever else and live to be a hundred. That was not his mission. He wanted people to get right with God. Emotionally, he gave us some things, certainly Sermon in the Mount and other places that could really help us emotionally. But we said just, let's be honest, none of us ever gets totally fixed emotionally, right? Now, he ministered to people and he helped people, and we should too, but we're never going to get it all in line. We're still humans. We're still going to have our quirks, our idiosyncrasies, our weirdness. But the only thing that matters is spiritually are we right with God. Then we looked at some passages that tell us the very sobering facts about where mankind is today. And these are verses that are hard to look at, honestly. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus said. This is him talking. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and uh, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And then down in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Clearly, most people will not be saved in eternity. I know it broke Jesus' heart to say it, but he always told the truth, and that was the truth. And so he said on that basis in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then the apostles must have totally bought into that, Because when they were confronted for what they were doing, preaching the message in Jerusalem, they said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So, we sing the song, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. After I preached a sermon in the East, the one you heard two weeks ago, I preached it a couple of weeks earlier in the East. After I got through, a brother named Jason said, after hearing that sermon and the seriousness of life and death and meeting God and all of that, he said, frankly, I'm overwhelmed. I said, well, me too. (laughs) But there are answers. You know, years ago, I was in uh, San Diego back in the 80s, mid-80s, and one day this young campus minister came in, guy that thought I was so old at 42. Now he's a grandfather. Anyway, he came in and said, hey, I met these guys at UCSD, 
and they have come over from China. They're doing this math intensive thing, a graduate level math course, but I got them to agree that we can study the Bible a few times. But he said they're studying so much, the only time they can study is between 12 and 2, midnight to 2 in the morning. He said, can you handle that? I said, yeah, we can handle that. So I went over and here are all these male guys in their underwear uh, in, in their room studying math all the time. And I sat down and they had no concept really of religion. Maybe some vague ideas, but certainly they were not religious. And so I'm talking to them, and I said, you know, Christianity is a very unique religion. There are some things that all religions have in common. Uh, All religions will tell you to do good and to be good, right? They all do, Christianity included. But Christianity is absolutely unique in this one way. It says you can't do it. That's what it says. Unless Jesus is in you doing it through you. But on your own, no way you can do it. You can try to do better. You can make some improvements. But by the time you get to be 75 like me, you're going to be a mess without Jesus. I know too many old guys that are negative, cynical, and worse. Uh, The problem, the problem with sin, the solution to sin, the problem with sin is there's so many ways to do it. There are so many ways to be guilty of sin. Thank from your wife. From my wife. Okay, thank you. Well, I, I do have a little frog in there today. Sometimes I get a little froggy. And Mark always takes care of me. Okay. Uh-oh. Thank you. Wrong actions. All the ways to sin. Wrong actions. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So wrong actions, obvious, right? Shouldn't go around killing people and robbing banks and all that. Okay, then Matthew 12 says that words matter to God. Jesus said, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. All right? We talk a lot, right? Tongue's found in a slippery place, and it says a lot. Gets us in trouble. Wrong thoughts. God reads our minds. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. You see, all outward sins start in the heart. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So wrong thoughts. And then you got wrong motivations. 1 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore judge nothing until the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Not only what you do or say, but why you do it, your motivation. And then, if that weren't enough, 
failure to do right things. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Wow. All of these ways to sin, there better be a solution to sin, right? I mean, this is amazing, it's kind of overwhelming. How many sins have you committed in your life? One time I was reading this commentary, and uh, it was by a guy back in the 1800s, and he was in a movement of churches that was pretty kind of doctrinally oriented. And so a lot of times guys that are real doctrinally oriented, they don't exactly get in touch with personal issues. And so I thought, as he started talking about sin, that he wouldn't have an idea. But that old dude said that probably a mature sinner sins at least a couple of million times in their lives. And I thought, wow, that dude's more in touch than I thought he was. Well, now you multiply that out by all of humanity. How many sins has humanity committed and will commit? Millions? No, that wouldn't be enough. Billions? Trillions? Quadrillions? Quintillions? Nonillions? Decillions? And there are more on the list of how to multiply it on out. I don't know. It's staggering. Any way you go at it, right? I mean, we got a problem in the world with sin. I've got a problem, and the world does. Well... Here's what doesn't solve it. Any religion besides Christianity is not of God. That's Matthew uh, 7 that we looked at and, and uh, John 12 and, or 14 and Acts 4. We looked at those passages and basically says all roads don't lead to heaven. But then besides that, Christianity as a religion doesn't save either. Old Testament religion couldn't save. Even though God did his experiment with the Old Testament people, the Israelites, for a long time. But the Hebrew writer said, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, there was some temporary relief going on, but he said animal sacrifices can't take away sin. Now, stop and think about that one for a minute. Here's another mind-boggling thing. There are all kinds of offerings. Here are the main five. Burn offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. There were others, but those are the five main kinds of, of sacrifice in the Old Testament. The burnt offerings, they had an evening and a morning sacrifice every day. Plus, they had other times for burnt offerings as well. But if you multiply those out from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, uh, basically 1,500 years, You'd, you'd have well over a million burnt offerings alone. And then you get all the other ones worked in. I remember reading a report, a report by a Roman official during the Passover time in Jerusalem in the first century. Over a quarter million lambs were sacrificed in that one Passover. Now stop and think of this. The animal sacrifice were innocent, right? They're not guilty of sin. They were painfully slaughtered. They suffered for man's sins, but didn't take them away, but they suffered. Uh, they were often offered by the uh, one who was uh, making the sacrifice, and there were billions of them offered. All of that combined couldn't take away one sin. You see, this thing of solution to sin, this, this is not some light matter. When you start looking at it, 
Our good deeds and our religious deeds cannot offset one sin. Romans 1 through 3, one of my favorite books, uh, I've taught it to you, I think, on midweeks a couple of years back, but in Romans 1 through 3, he talks about the problem of sin. And he says in chapter 1, the Gentiles are in sin, and he described it in multiple ways in verses 18 through 32. Then in chapter 2, he said, you religious guys, you Jews, you're not really any better off, and here's your problem. And so he addressed them. In chapter 3, he talked about the universality of sin and says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when I write or teach Romans 1 through 3, my heading is, the best of us is a mess. I don't know who the best of us is here today, but I, whoever it is, it ain't me, but whoever it is, you're a mess. I can promise you that compared to Jesus. In Romans 3, he says, there's none good, no, not one. Now, you can compare yourself to Hitler or some other person, and you can look good. Compared to Jesus, oh, baby, that's a different matter, right? Question raised in Romans is not how a loving God can send people to hell. The question reading Romans 1 through 3 is, how can a just God do anything else? That's what you really get out of the early part of Romans. And there's no, this balancing scale, this is what most people believe. That God looks at us, He puts our good deeds on one side, our bad deeds on one side. If our good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then we're okay. Most people believe that. What's the problem with that? I, I preached this for a long time, but I got to live it out last year. I got pulled over by a policeman. He said, I didn't come to a complete stop. Now, in Dallas, nobody's going to mess with you on that. Uh, you know, as long as you look and everything to get a quota, evidently. I'm, I'm guessing. I, I've heard that. I'm guessing. But this dude pulls me over. I'm thinking, what in the world? And he says, sir, you didn't stop at the stop sign. You did a rolling stop. Well, I said, sorry about that. I, I, I didn't mean to. I said, you know, I got a driver's license at age 15. So that would have been uh, 59 years ago, I think. And I said, I've never gotten a ticket for moving violation. I, I was impressed. I tried everything. My wife said after we pulled away, she said, I'm surprised that dude didn't take you in. I couldn't believe he was going to give me a ticket. I mean, had he no idea that I have stopped, dead stopped, at hundreds of thousands of stop signs in my driving career. None of that mattered one bit. I broke the law. And I had to pay the fine, $200, and another 60 if you want to keep it off your record, and then you got to get stuff signed and notarized and all that. So $260. I didn't mind that. It just hurt my feelings. <laughs> but that's how it is. Once we sin before God at an accountable age, 
Nothing's going to come along and take that away. Not all your good deeds in the world are going to work that way. There's no balancing scale. Isaiah said it most bluntly. He said in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So, we're not going to save ourselves by our good deeds. It's got to be more than that. Well, the solution is Jesus. But how could Jesus, how could he take away the sins of the world? Billions and trillions and gugillions or whatever that other word was. How could he do that? There's only one answer. And it's the most phenomenal thing that the human mind can comprehend. And that is that God had to become a man and die for us. There's no other possible answer. Uh, No one could die for us. An innocent animal, millions, billions of those. God had to become a man. And that's who Jesus is. You know, I was talking to a guy recently, he emailed me, might be somebody in this group, but they were talking to an Uber driver, and uh, this guy was fairly religious, but he brought up the idea, he said, Jesus is actually the first thing God created, and then Jesus created everything else, because John 1, Hebrews 1, and Colossians 1 says that he created everything. The Jehovah's Witness group Their view is that Michael, the archangel, is the same as Jesus. And so Jesus is an archangel, but he's not God in the flesh. Well, here's some thoughts about that. Matthew 4.10 says that you can only worship God. That's what he told Satan. Only worship God. And then in Revelation 19.10, and one other passage in Revelation, John, who was writing down these revelations that God was giving him, John was so overwhelmed with this angel, this messenger that was giving him the messages, he fell down on his knees twice. And the angel said, no, 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 get up, get up. You can't worship me. I'm an angel. And only worship God is the idea. And then in Hebrews 6, Jesus accepted worship from angels and men. He certainly accepted it during his ministry. We read about in the Gospels from men, but angels also. And so Hebrews 1, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world. Now, some people look at firstborn without understanding the background of the word, and they say, well, that means Jesus was the first one created, and then he created everything else. Well, the problem with that is firstborn was... The fact that the, what it means is the oldest child in a family was the one that was highest honored. And so God then uses that in more of a symbolic way when he calls David his firstborn, King David. Well, King David was the young kid, right, in his family. But he was called the firstborn by God. He was the highest honored. That's what that means. But if you keep reading, he clears that up. He says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteous will be the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is called God numerous times in the New Testament. And this thing about Michael, it says in Jude 1, 
Even the angel, uh, archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That's not my field, he's saying. Uh, only God's going to have to deal with Satan. Well, Jesus uh, certainly had no problem with rebuking him. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Get out of here. He had no problem dealing with him. So, you look at all of the passages, you realize that God had to go to the ultimate length of becoming a man and dying for our sins. What an amazing, amazing statement. So we sing the song, What Can Take Away My Sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is a concept beyond our real comprehension in so many ways. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when we do what the Bible says about coming into a relationship with Jesus, then we are in him, in a relationship, but in him in a way that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He was our substitute on the cross, but he's our substitute even now as we live in him. God looks at us and sees the perfect Jesus. Amazing, huh? Romans 4, 8. Paul said, blessed is the man, happy is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Whoever that is, I want to be him, right? Uh, that's what he says. That we can live in a relationship with God through Jesus so that God never counts our sins against us. When we're not in that relationship, every sin a person commits is counted against us. That's how we get up to those two million or how many ever it's going to be. But in Christ, they're never counted against you. They're washed away, and then they're never counted against you. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, continual action verb, continues to purify us from all sin. And so like the windshield wipers on the car, they're constantly taking it away. Jesus' blood is uh, circulating in his spiritual body like our physical blood circulates in our physical body and takes away the impurities. We're always cleansed by the blood of Jesus. It's not since, just since the cross either, but before I need to add this in since I talked about the Old Testament sacrifices. If the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, what about those who died before the cross? Well, God has that covered. In Hebrews 9, it says, He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And then he goes all the way back to Adam in Romans 3. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So... He didn't punish the people in spite of the fact that the blood of bulls and goats were not the ultimate solution. He didn't punish them. Why? Because he was looking forward to the cross. You see, we're time-bound creatures. We can't fathom some of this. On the other hand, God is timeless. And so in Revelation 13, 8, it talks about Jesus being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world before God ever created mankind. It was a done deal. 
He knew exactly what would happen in our time because to him it was already done. Isn't that amazing? We have trouble with that, right? But let's say, you know, there are practical ways to help us see it. Let's say that I owe uh, Charles back here 100 bucks. Yeah, yeah, I knew you'd like that one. But I'm saying, hey, man, I am broke. I'm an old guy. I'm broke. And so, uh, you know, uh, Pierre steps up, and Pierre says, well, hey, Charles, I'll take care of that for you. Uh, Gordon doesn't have to pay. I'll pay. I don't have it with me right now, but as soon as church is over, I'll run down to the ATM, get some cash out, give you the 100 bucks. Wow. All right, now, at that point, Charles is no longer looking at me, right? He's looking at Pierre. No money is past hands, but Charles is fine with me. We're, we're buddies now. I don't owe him anything. But it hasn't happened in time yet. And in God's mind, the sacrifice had happened before man was ever created, which leads me to my conclusion. I've struggled with the concept of aging and death for a really long time. I guess since I was a little bitty guy and found out I'm going to die. Um, I've always had trouble with that. I, this book, An Aging Grace, that Jeannie Shaw put together with a lot of different writers, I wrote two chapters in it, and uh, it is an awesome book. Thank you. Young guys ought to read it so they know how to deal with their parents and grandparents. Old guys need to read it because that's us. <laughs> but I was honest about it in my book, An Aging Grace. But I had a breakthrough with that even recently and it's because of the way that I looked at this whole thing of God's plan in Christ and the whole sin issue I think what I had done for most of the time I often make a difference between God's tolerated or allowed will and his ideal will both function right Anything that goes on, God allows it because he's in control of the universe. So anything that goes on, even bad things, God ultimately is in control of that. He has a tolerated will. On the other hand, his ideal will is no sin, everything good. That's his ideal will. So I've always looked at death in this way. I said, this is an enemy. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy is death, and Christ will conquer that when he comes back. So I've always looked at it as a negative, and I said, well, Adam and Eve messed up. Not that I would have done any better, but they messed up. They got kicked out of the garden where the tree of life was, and so from then on, the death sentence physically passed on to all men, and so it's kind of a negative. God allowed it, and he provided Jesus and all that, but death is an enemy. And then I got thinking, wait a minute. God knew before he created man exactly what was going to happen and he knew that he would have to become a man and die for us. And that was a part of his plan from the beginning. And I thought to myself, well, hey, Fur, would you really want something to take away that glorious story of God becoming a man and dying for us? So I, I moved that from the tolerated or allowed will category over into the ideal will. Because God wanted to give us the most beautiful story that could ever be conceived and grasped even a little by the mind of man. That the creator would become one of the created. 
in order to bear the sins of the world. And I thought, God, hey, I'm not much into this aging and death thing, but I'm good with it because I realize what a story this is, the love story beyond all love stories, that God so loved the world that he gave his son, but his son was a part of God, a part of deity and eternity who became a man and died for us. So what is God looking for in you and me, guys? The sin problem's real, right? Always has been. But what God is looking for is a heart of gratitude, faithfulness, a heart set on pleasing Him. There's a lot of difference between perfection and faithfulness. God is just asking us to be faithful. And when we're faithful, as we taught in Romans, you take a, a guy that's, you know, uh, following Satan, he follows him. That's his characteristic way of life. But he turns aside now and then and does good, but he ends back up on the path of bad and ends up with Satan. On the other hand, the disciple of Jesus, we have a heart to follow Jesus. But we're human and we do turn aside and mess up, but that's not our heart and we get right back on the path and we're going to end up with Jesus. You ask my wife of 53 and a half years, is Gordon a perfect husband? Mm. That, it, 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 the answer will come quickly, I can promise. <laughs> On the other hand, if you ask Teresa, is Gordon a faithful husband? She won't blink an eye, and the answer will be just as fast in a positive direction. I'm faithful. I love that woman. I thank God for her every day. Well, almost every day. <laughs> just being real. And my heart is always to be the best husband I can be. And uh, that's what God is looking for. He knows we're not going to be perfect, but he wants our heart, knows that we're faithful. I preached a sermon one time called, The Heart of the Issue is the Heart. And the issue of the heart is the issue. What God is after is our hearts with him. Amen. So when we say the only solution to sin, there's a quick answer that comes out. Yeah, that's Jesus. He died for the sins of the world. But there's a whole lot more involved in that than we normally think about. Right? So I hope you have a bigger picture of Jesus. Hope you have a bigger picture of God's plan. Hope you have a bigger picture of God's love. And how much God just wants us to live a life of gratitude and then when this life doom, runs through and it doesn't take long then we're with him forever and ever and ever and ever what a plan had he when he first made Adam and Eve as we take the communion together this is uh, a lot of thoughts that can tie into that but my main thought is I see Jesus on the cross, and I realize that that is the God-man on the cross. And he didn't just die for the sins of the world, but when he died, he knew exactly what mine would be to the end of my days. He knows exactly what yours have been and will be. And when he died, he did it painfully but joyfully because he knew 